We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Welcome back to Soft Talk Radio. My name is Neil Bradley. With me today is Joe Quinn. Hi there. And Pierre Lescodon. Hello. Welcome back, fellows. This week, we're going to be talking with Ellen Brown. Ellen is the author of a dozen books on finance and health, and she's developed her skills researching as an attorney practicing civil litigation in Los Angeles. In her book, Web of Debt, Ellen turns her investigative skills to an analysis of the Federal Reserve and the quote-unquote money trust. She shows how this private cartel has usurped the power to create money from the people themselves and explains how we, the people, can get it back. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Are you there? I am. Hi okay. Now. Hi. Okay. Excellent. Well, it's great to have you on. Um, this is an extra extra special day for Ellen. It's her birthday today. So thank you very much for taking time out to, to come and talk to us for a while. And happy birthday. Oh, thank happy you. Happy birthday. Yes. Um, we, we are familiar with your work. Um, we must have some 50 articles written by you on Sotnet over the years. And we've got your book, Web of Debt, which we highly recommend. And we're going to use it as the basis of our quick chat with you today. So let's get straight down to it. In Web of Debt, you explain the ABCs of money, where it comes from, how it typically functions. Everybody knows, right, that it's silly to believe that money grows on trees. Well, actually, the reality is even sillier than that. When I first read Ellen's explanation for, for how money is typically, at least initially, created, I actually have to reread the passage because I was thinking to myself, no, no, it, it cannot be as simple as that. So I want to get straight in there to sort of let's demystify this illusion that the, the whole house of cards seems to be built on. Can you explain, Ellen, for our listeners, what, what this, this slate of hand is that creates money out of thin air? Well, it's created by double-entry bookkeeping. So really what's happening is that you, the borrower, create the money. I mean, your your promise to pay is turned into money. So you go to the bank, let's say, to get a mortgage, and you will sign a paper called a mortgage, and the bank will write that up on one side of their books as an asset to themselves. Let's say it was for $500,000. So they'll write that. $500,000 on one side of their books and then they'll write it as a liability to themselves on the other side of their books because they will write that sum into a checking account and you are now entitled to write a check to your seller for that sum or whoever else you're going to write it to and um, and they are liable to cover that debt. So so they have to draw that. when When your check goes out of the bank into another bank, they have to draw that from somewhere, but what they do is they 
withdraw it from their deposits if they have them. And if the depositors have spent their money, then they draw them from the Fed funds, you know, in the U.S., which is that they bar- uh-huh. basically borrow them from another bank. Well, well, what they could have done, let's say your $500,000 went into another bank, they can, they're basically borrowing the same $500,000 back that they just created. So it's like check kiting. So they, they pay very little. The Fed funds rate is 0.25%. So they're paying almost nothing to borrow this money. They borrow it from somewhere, they, but they could borrow it from the depositors. Um, that's their cheapest source. Or if Fed funds, 0.25%, or they can borrow it from the Federal Reserve, 0.75%, or the money market. There are various places they could get it. But they borrow, borrow very cheaply, and then they lend it to you at a higher rate. Um, which is what people think banks do, that they they borrow short and lend long. But but where the slate of hand comes in is that the depositor's money is still there. They haven't spent it. They don't even know that it's being lent. They'd, I mean, I suppose it's somewhere in the fine print when you when you put your money in the bank. But depositors, you never go to the bank and say... Um, try to draw your money out and then the bank says I'm sorry we just lent that to your neighbor for 30 years and you'll you'll have to come back later. They've always got your money available and the reason it works is that it's all one great big system and they can they can borrow it from many different places. So so it's really just a pretense, but what they have done is create that money on their books as the equivalent of an overdraft in your account. I see. So right, right, right there. That seems to me to be a kind of a a scam in a way. Right at the very beginning, smells, there's there's yeah. something wrong with that because although I can understand in a way that if if you look at a bank like a normal business, they make a product and they sell that product to a person and they get money for it, but they have to then afterwards subtract their costs. The costs that, so they make a profit essentially any business that makes a product and sells it they 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 make a profit on what they sell it might be you know 10 50 up to 50% or more or whatever but it's it's not the entire value uh of the, of, of the, the product, product itself but but that's the case with banks you know they they because i suppose the, the the point is that it doesn't cost them anything to actually produce the money what they're selling to people technically is money but it's just paper so there's almost no cost and the is interest a- is much more than you think of it. You think, well, 5%, all right, service fee, that's that's all right. But we're talking about 5% every year. So over 30 years, you over 20 years, that's 100%. Over 30 years, and that's just with straight interest, not count, counting compound. Yeah. So that's 100% over 20 years. Over 30 years, that's 150%. So you have just increased the cost of your house by 150% or by 250% of what you you thought it was in the first place yeah. um just for and if they were taking a major risk that would make it that would maybe that would count but they're taking the house as collateral so exactly, they don't really yeah. lose even if you don't pay they get the house and they're they're backstopped by the government the reason they they can get this good deal from each other is that They've got the protection of FDIC insurance in the U.S. They've got um, now we've seen that they'll get bailed out as being too big to fail. I mean, the government always steps in to save them. So we, the people, are actually underwriting this whole deal, and the banks Mm -hmm. are making a huge amount of profit off it, pretty much guaranteed profit. And then 
there seems to be another paradox that you address uh, in your book. If money is created out of, out of loans, uh, the, amount, the money amounting to the principal, say you grow 100,000 to buy a house, so after 25 years you have to uh, reimburse 200,000, during this operation the bank or only 100,000 were created. So where do you find the other 100,000 interest to repay your loan? There seems to be right. a chronic shortage of money. Right, and it's an, they, they like it that way because that banker's business is to lend money. So as long as there's not enough money out there, somebody somewhere has to take out another loan in order to make up the interest. And that's how bankers stay in business. It's kind of like, you know, you mentioned I had written books on health and the politics of health. It's kind of like the health business. Their business is really sick people. They're in the business of -hmm. of, uh, sick people is their market. And so they don't really have a great incentive to make people well, just like bankers don't have a great incentive to get you out of debt. They want to keep you in debt because that's their business. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, people would collapse your own market. And we mentioned uh, money created of, out of thin air on one side, but collateral is a re, real tangible asset. That's a house. That's a house of citizens that gets seized when citizens are unable to pay back that loan. And by definition, because of the very structure of this financial system, you, it's not possible to have 100% of the borrowers that pay back their loans, Right. Right. Some, either somebody has to go into fault or somebody has to take out new loans somewhere um, or you have to have inflation of the money supply. Like you could have the government print money, which which is like the social social credit solution, which I think is actually a good solution. But the way mm-hmm. it's set up now, yeah, they periodically, like they create these great bubbles where it looks like a very good deal to borrow and they push lending like to subprime borrowers, et cetera. Anybody can get a loan. So you have this huge bubble like in the housing market. And then they contract the money supply in some way, raise the interest rates or um, make borrowing more difficult. And then then you have a, a boom and a bust cycle. And during the bust cycle, many people go into default and then you have foreclosures. And the bankers wind up with all the assets. So if you look globally, there there is this huge growth of. I mean, there are just a few companies I've seen <clears throat> seen articles about how f- how few companies own most of the country now, or most of the world now in terms of the big businesses and, of course, the real estate. And uh, there's an asymmetry in this bubble process because those big bankers own such a quantity of assets and liquidities that they can uh, manipulate the markets from A to Z. So Mm -hmm. I suspect that they buy when the value is low, they buy, they buy, and the market becomes bullish, and then they pierce the bubble, it drops, and uh, usually people, small investors, they join the frenzy when it's too late. At the end of the bullish period, and they still own the assets when the market gets bearish, the price drop, and they lose everything. And then the bankers come in when the prices are very low, and they buy for uh, one penny to a dollar, right? 
Right, and people blame themselves. They don't realize that they've that it's a a global thing. They think, oh, I shouldn't have bought at the top. I I am always jumping mm. in at the wrong time, or I mean, they sort of know in in their hearts that they were trying to make a make a quick buck <laughs> jumping on this yeah, but, on this well, thing, and they think, the oh, I I just made a bad bet. But in fact, it's it's and in the the house, it's it's a huge casino, and the house always wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the, 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 in, in, in this way of looking at it, it, it actually sounds like it's a policy decision to deliberately inflate, uh, say, a, a housing real estate bubble, and then to pierce it. Is it, that what we're looking at here? That far from being accidents of nature or just economic, you know, laws playing themselves out, you're looking at a situation where something is deliberately inflated in order to burst it. And, and well, it does look that way, but it's hard to put your finger on who exactly mm. would be controlling the whole system. But, for example, in the in the housing bubble, what they did was, um, got in the U.S., they got rid of Glass-Steagall, which separated um, investment banking from depository banking. And then the investment bankers designed this whole system of securitization where they could um, sell off they could buy up bundles of mortgages and sell them off to investors. So the banks weren't keeping those on their books, so they didn't really care if if they went into default. They got their fees up front for churning these loans, and then they went they went to the sucker investors basically who got stuck with the the bill when that when those uh homes went into default. But the regulators at the top, the manipulators of the system should have whether they, I mean, I would presume they they knew that they were that they yeah, were about to create a disaster, but they didn't care because they're working for Wall Street. That's their business. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's where they shouldn't they should have regulated that stuff. They should have kept the regulations in place. They shouldn't have allowed that sort of um, the the capital requirements were imposed in order to limit the loans that banks could make. And then they got around the capital requirements by this whole securitization scheme, and they changed the laws to allow that. Well, and it's always the lobbyists who change the laws. Yeah. When I, I mean, when I when I think about the whole banking system and and how it works and the problems that it's caused specifically or particularly over the past you know number of years, I I try to look at the basis of it and and try and make some sense of it. And when I look at the basis of of our banking system as it is today, my fundamental problem with it is that I can't find an answer, a good answer for what value there is in a bank providing the service of simply holding people's money, why they should deserve to make large profits on interest, for example, from simply holding people's money, which they make profits on, and also from um, loaning uh, money to people because uh, you don't need to be a private institution to do that and I don't think you should be a private institution uh, uh, to do that. I think there's a, as you have argued for quite a long time yourself Alan, and in your in your in the website the Public Banking Institute as a, uh, makes a, the argument for a solution to this which is that there should be state control over bank over banks and the and and the issuing of loans for example because Issuing loans to people is in the state's interest 
you know, people will get loans to set up a business or to produce, you know, to, to, to contribute to the economy. And the, the end result of that is that they become, let's say, productive members of society and have, you know, start, they, pr- they produce things, they start making things, they, you know, they contribute to the economy in a very real way. And that uh, then provides a benefit to the state in terms of taxes from a new business that a person would set up as a result of being given some money to uh, being loaned money. Um, so I don't think any of that. There's, I don't think there's any good argument uh, for that service essentially being 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 offered at a at a at a fee or at a charge to a private institution when it could be can be offered should be offered for free. Yeah. But because the end results are, are 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 there for the benefit of the local people in the local community in the local state. But the situation we have right now is that there's these banks that are offering this service, which it really isn't a very good service at all, and making an awful lot of money off that simple service. Well, they don't even provide uh, any goods. They don't provide anything tangible to people. Uh, they just provide paper money, and in a lot of cases, they don't even provide the paper. They just provide numbers on a screen. So how do these people justify getting large profits from that kind of a service? That shouldn't be private, you know? It shouldn't be It shouldn't be a private interest type of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah I totally agree. Um, if I saw a great video that said that what banks do basically is to create uh, spendable IOUs. So if you went to the grocery store and you tried to write the grocer an IOU, say, you know, I'm going to get paid on Friday, here's my IOU, you could collect mm-hmm. on Friday, the grocer won't take it because he doesn't know you and he doesn't know... Uh, you know how good if you're good for mm-hmm. the money, but so you go to the bank and you say, "Here's my IOU. I'll pay you on Friday," um, and the bank will give you a spendable IOUs, which are what mm-hmm. we call money, um, in return for. I mean, they'll check you out. They'll find out what kind of collateral you have in case you don't pay, or how they can garnish your wages. They've got the the court system behind them, and you know they have this mm-hmm. whole machinery for making sure you pay or for collecting if you don't pay. So they mm-hmm. will give you these little spendable IOUs. But that, like you say, should be a public service. There's no reason yeah. why the government itself, which is the spendable IOUs, are government money. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. people accept them because they're backed by the government. So it should be the government that gives you these spendable IOUs that are just created on the books anyway. Um, and okay. the the other services that banks perform, a safe place to keep your money, it, they are no longer safe because of these bail-in provisions that are coming down. I mean, I predict that the next big crash is going to be Bank of America or J.P. Morgan Chase with it when they gamble away, they get caught in some big derivatives bet and mm-hmm. they will now with with the because they've mingled their investment um side of their business with their depository business, they will just take our deposits well, they will have already taken them. I mean, that's the way the whole system works. So they've used our deposits for their bet. And if they lose the money, we don't have any recourse because mm-hmm. derivatives go first in bankruptcy. So they'll yeah. just say, well, we took the collateral and there's no more collateral and you all are out of luck. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. the other reason we- is for check cashing uh, services. And you could easily do that. Like with a postal bank, they've traditionally done check cashing services, which are... Yeah, those are just basic government banks. In fact, the reason go- we had a postal bank, <clears throat> excuse me, until 1967, and the reason it was initially very popular was that there wasn't any FDIC insurance, and so you were putting your money with the government. So 
so you in, inherently had a government guarantee. Then in 1933, mm-hmm. they came out with FDIC insurance, so then the, the big banks could <clears throat> compete. But we should. There, but the FDIC insurance is not good anymore because there's not nearly enough money in the fund to cover a big bust at, at Chase or Bank of America. So we should yeah. go back to a, a government bank like a postal bank. Absolutely, Alan. We have a call here, so um, I'm going to go ahead and take it and see if anyone uh, has uh, an interesting question for you. Okay. Uh, hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hello, caller. Hello. Hi, what's your name? Where are you calling from? My name's Joe. Hey, Joe. What I'd like to find out... you have a question for Alan? Yeah. Are you for banks or against banks if they're honest banks? Well, um, what we've talked about a lot, I'm president of the Public Banking Institute, and what we've talked a lot of about a lot in the U.S. is uh, the Bank of North Dakota, which is our only publicly owned depository bank. And, of course, we're totally for that model where the Bank of North Dakota is basically the central bank for North Dakota. But then they they partner with the private banks, which is perfectly fine. They partner with the local um, community banks, and therefore they help them with their capital requirements so they don't have to sell their loans off to investors. They keep their loans on their books, so they, they watch your mortgage for 30 years. They want you to pay off that mortgage, so they... They only take creditworthy borrowers, and they they they're willing to negotiate it, um, if you have a problem paying. So so mm-hmm. it's, these are right. friendly so in local other words, banks. The answer is yes. That's uh, yes, banking. yes okay. for both. Yes, right. there are certain things that should be public, and certain things that are perfectly fine being private. But I'm I'm not for giant global international private banks. I think those are incredibly risky, and they've taken over our government. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about the Dodd-Frank bill? Um, well, it, I don't think it has um, um, fixed the problem, partly because because the banks are being more regulated, the lending is being driven into the shadow banking system, which is completely unregulated. It's um, That's the repo market and the derivatives market, and what pr- what protects that is the super priority in bankruptcy. It's the bankruptcy reform law of 2005 allowed them to go first in bankruptcy. So so that's their guarantee, which is also a government guarantee, even though they're totally unregulated. And when, when that system goes down, it's there's going to be no protection for, for Well, Barney deposit. Frank just said today on Meet the Press that by law, because the Dodd-Frank bill, you can't have the bailouts that you did back in 2008. The government can't come in to bail out the banks. Is he lying? That's correct. They they have said, well, they in the Dodd-Frank bill it says that if for most forms of de- derivatives gambling that we the people are not going to bail them out. There's some some forms of derivatives are allowed as being actually necessary to protect the depositors, but most of them are actually just investments on the part of the bank where the bank is making money. And for those things, we, we the taxpayers, are not going to bail them out. So that's why they've come up with these bail-in plans, which are what the, these living wills that the, that the Financial Stability Board in Switzerland, which is not us, foreign-imposed rules 
have required the banks to come up with these living wills to say what they will do in the event of if they become insolvent and the government refuses to bail them out, which is a situation we have in the U.S. and also in Europe. They're barking at bailouts. Right. So what they will do is bail in the depositors' money. They're going to bail in the creditors' money. They're not real specific, but the largest class of creditors of a bank are the depositors. Uh, so what does that mean for the banking system as a whole in case um, J.P. Morgan and Bank of America go almost belly up? Well, what they will do is take our deposits. And when we turn you to mean the like FDA, in Cyprus? yes, like in Cyprus, and mm. we'll we'll say, well, we're protected by FDIC insurance. So the FDIC, which has the FDIC fund, has twenty five billion dollars in it, and J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America both have over a trillion dollars in deposits. So let's say they have another huge gambling. It'll be like the thirty three to one um, Bear Stearns um, predicament back in two thousand eight. Yeah. Right. So what if they they lose like seven hundred billion was what the it won't bailout be was? To pay it out. Yeah. Yeah, there's pay not gonna be any money. Yeah. And the FDIC will will the normally what they do is borrow from the Treasury, but the Treasury will say, Sorry, um Dodd Frank says we're not allowed to cover this sort of bust. Yeah, well, I guess that means America's gonna go in the dumper no matter what. <laughs> well, to me it's a little it's bit that when way. that when that happens or at least but, I mean, what we need to do is set up a public system and rather quickly so we have something to move into should that mm-hmm. happen. But if it does happen, it's when crises happen that people suddenly wake up and become willing to look at changing the system. The system, mm-hmm. it needs a radical overhaul. You can't yeah. normally pull that off except when things are pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, you have more faith in the people than I do. Well, time will well, it's tell. happened so, in other countries, like Argentina. They totally ra- yeah. they radically overhauled the system in 2001. Mm-hmm. All right, Joe, thanks for your call. Okay. Thanks, Joe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ellen, I have um, a question along this idea of uh, money being uh, created by public entities versus money being created by private entities. The argument against uh, publicly created money is the inflation and like uh, Keynes or Lincoln or Carey showed money creation created by public entities doesn't necessarily lead to inflation. Can you explain the this point for our auditors? Well I lately have gotten into social credit, C. H. Douglas. Um in it when I wrote Web of Debt, which is that first came out in two thousand seven, but it I was citing fig, uh, figures then from Richard Cook where the amount that people earned in the U.S. from wages, salaries, all sources was $10 trillion. And at that time, our GDP was $13 trillion. So we, the people, did not earn enough money to buy our own GDP. And the reason is that producers all along the chain of production borrow, and so they have to pay back their borrowing costs and, of course, they want some profit. So they always set their price higher than what they paid out to their workers and suppliers. So so the people out there who got the money can't afford to buy the products they made. So if you added, like in, in at that point, I think that was 2006, those figures, 
if you had added three trillion dollars to the to the money supply, which would be a nice quantitative easing, um, you would merely let's say you actually gave it to the people and, uh, instead of doing what they do now, where they're just giving it to the banks in an asset swap. But let's say you directly paid that as social security, or maybe paid the student paid off the student loans, or um, something that went directly into, or just as a dividend to the people. Say every adult got a thousand dollars a month. I think that comes out to three trillion dollars. Um, you would merely bring the money supply up to where it could buy all the GDP without people having to borrow. What the, what we do now is we make up that extra three trillion by borrowing, which is all the better for the banks and all the worse for us because it puts us in that unrepayable debt spiral. Mm-hmm. So so it's not, then you might say, well, next year it's going to be, you know, if you try to do that every year, at some point you're going to inflate the system, which would be true. But so at that point you quit doing it. You you monitor, you, you pump the money out there first. And then when you see the prices are going up across the board, that's when you stop paying the dividend because there is enough money out there to to buy things. But, mm-hmm. but if you figure that everybody, the average tax rate is 20%. And that money in a good economy, money changes hands seven times in a year. So seven people will pay 20% in taxes. So that's 140%. At that rate, the government will get back more than the money it put out there in the form of taxes. Of course, that's not quite true because you only pay taxes on your profits, not on your actual payments. But but anyway, they're going to get a lot back in the form of taxes in a vibrant economy. Absolutely. So why isn't the government doing that? Why is the government in, in most countries allowing these banks to essentially take money out of the system and provide nothing in return? Well, the bankers do pretty much control the system. Certainly in the U.S. they do. And uh, people just don't understand how the system works. And that's why I keep writing, writing, writing mm-hmm. um, to raise awareness on that. And I think politicians, even if they mean perfectly well, they really don't understand that. And they, too, think that it's going to inflate the system if if Congress just starts printing yeah. money and... They have gone to a lot, they've gone to a lot of effort to um, spread this, uh, this lie that yeah. the reason why you, the public, through your representatives in government, cannot create your own money system and run it and use it to create goods and so on, is because, well, the underlying message that comes across is that you are all incompetent. You don't have the competence to do this. Things will spiral out of control. You can't control inflation, blah, blah, blah. They've gone to a lot of effort to ensure that everyone nods and goes, yes, yes, of course. It's also complicated. How could I possibly understand it? Here, you take care of it. And uh, the system you advocate for money issued by uh, public authorities is not only theory. There are many examples of countries that experience a very successful uh, years of economic growth, like uh, Japan or China or uh, even Nazi Germany, because one of the fundamental features was that the government held the power to issue money. Exactly. Well, our government, too, has the power. They're just not using it. Exactly. Exactly. It is there. Um, 
And they I, could. I, I had suggested, and everybody made fun of it. <laughs> but I first suggested the trillion-dollar coin in Web of Debt, <clears throat> and then then uh-huh. said that it actually made it as high as uh, it was suggested to <clears throat> the. Anyway, the the president's spokesperson said, "No, we're not going <clears throat> to do the trillion-dollar coin idea." But it actually made it that up, up that far. Um, in the in the Constitution, it says Congress shall have the power to. Yeah. to coin money and regulate the value thereof. But Congress itself has cut off that power by by these regulations that were imposed in the 1980s that said you could only issue so many quarters and so many dimes and so many nickels. And anyway, you don't want to issue a trillion dollars worth of quarters. I mean, it would cost you a mint, so to speak. Um, Literally. <laughs> but, but you could. The one exception, the, the one the loophole they left was for the platinum coin. So you could issue several trillion dollar platinum coins. It's not like you're going to go out there and spend them. First of all, who's going to make cash for them? What you do is you put them in your bank bank account. So deposit it in your bank account with the Fed. And now you suddenly have three trillion dollars that you can write checks against as needed. But it just gets rid of this whole idea of we have a debt ceiling, we don't have the money, and where are we going to get the money? And when you start see prices going up, that's when you can start, you know, cutting uh-huh. back on what you put out there. To, to illustrate the the concept of uh, money or forms of money issued by uh, public authorities, you develop the example of stamps, postal stamps in your book. Can you expand on uh, on this example and explain uh, to our listeners? Um, postal stamps are. A form of currency. I mean, you could actually, let's say you owed somebody some money and you just didn't have any money in your wallet. And you could say, well, but I have these stamps. The person would take them because stamps are totally fungible. Um, You know, you can always use a stamp. It's always good for 44 cents or whatever it is now, 46 cents. Mm -hmm. Um, But so, so stamps were issued. And we have equivalent things like in frequent flyer miles, which really are a form of currency, or even some people call um, coupons that you get at the grocery store are, in a way, Mm -hmm. a form of money because they increase the currency. I mean, instead of having to pay $2, you only have to pay $1 plus the coupon. So Mm -hmm. they've supplemented your ability to spend. I've seen these systems where um, they're, um, they're internet trading systems where when as soon as you go into the system, you get... I forget what it is, $100, I think, credit that you just Mm -hmm. get for free. And then everybody spends their $100 credit on the other people's products. They just choose them off the Internet like you're ordering, you know, from Amazon or something. And then all these products that up till then there was no market for suddenly find a market. Well, it's because you've added some currency into the system. The money is there to pay for them. Yeah, yeah, we we have a question here from we have a chat room going with uh, people are people are listening and they're uh, discussing among themselves and we have a few questions. One of them uh, was a question: Was the system, the current banking system, always the way it is in its corruption and the problems with it today? Was it always that way, or did something significantly change somehow in in recent or fairly recent history? We've had two systems competing with each other going all the way back to Samaria, which is like 5,000 years ago. <clears throat> but the one we always hear about is the private one. We, 
I mean, that's really, I wrote my latest book. It's called The Public Bank Solution. And I mainly wrote it because the Bank of North Dakota was such a limited model. And, I, and people would say, well, they've got oil, they're a small state, et cetera. So I started looking at all the other public banks. Well, it turns out that 40% of banks globally are publicly owned. And they're mm-hmm. largely in the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, <clears throat> which mm-hmm. are running circles around us in terms of productivity, in terms of growth. And they do it through this public banking system, but we just don't hear about it. And historically, um, you had public banks, well, Sumeria and Egypt were basically, you know, ancient Sumeria and ancient Egypt were basically public banking systems. They didn't use a currency as we know it. I mean, they didn't use coins or paper money or anything like that. And then... um, they were competing with the usury bankers, which, you know, usury had a bad name in the Middle Ages. I mean, it was actually literally illegal in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. So you had public banks in the Middle Ages along with the private banks. And starting, say, in 1912, when we set up our Federal Reserve in 1913, Australia set up a totally public central bank, the bank, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, which just started printing money and or basically funded development all across the country just with the credit of the nation, rather like China does or whatever. They were just issuing their own money and uh, did remarkably well, and including funding their participation in World War One without having to borrow from the City of London. Well, this totally uh, alarmed the Bank of England because mm-hmm. they were losing control of their colonies, which they, I mean, they'd already lost them politically, but now they were losing economic tr- control, which they had because everybody had to borrow from them. So they quickly put an end to that. I mean, they um, changed the system and set up this whole central banking system where now central banks issue the money virtually everywhere and lend it to governments rather than the government bank issuing money directly for the benefit of the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of ties in with an article that you wrote just uh, not so long ago um, on September 4th. Uh, it was, the title was Making the World Safe for Banksters, Syria in the Crosshairs. And you kind of make the argument that <clears throat> uh, the current uh Desire to to bomb Syria is is tied to um, Syria's financial system and also then relates also to Iran, Iraq, Libya, and Libya a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the few few countries that are still outside of this um, private central banking system. It's not really private. Many central banks are government owned. But they're operated, they're called independent central banks, which means they're not serving the government. They lend money to the government, and they mm-hmm. basically are serving the banks. They're catering to the, to the banking system. But the, the, those Islamic countries particularly are still outside the system because, first of all, they think usury is a crime. Um, and they those particular countries have central banks that are owned by the government and the government uses it them to issue money and to issue credit for development pur- purposes directly they haven't joined the bank for international settlements and they haven't joined the world trade trade organization mm-hmm. so if you know they they coerce them economically and if that doesn't work then they they go to war then they bomb them yeah wow so there's a nexus there between banks and 
defense industry and governments and geopolitical strat- uh, you know strategies and stuff like that but i mean ultimately it's all just for profit is that does that seem to be the the goal it's just greed and it an does, but you would think is- they've you would think the big bankers have plenty of money. I, my sense yeah. is that they're actually sort of running scared in the sense that they have to control the whole system or they could mm. be found out. You know, if mm-hmm. somebody sets up a, a working model that is far better, well, look at Hitler's Germany, for example. That, mm-hmm. the, um, they were generated they were very productive when everybody else was going through this horrible depression and and japan was too and both of them were just they had stepped outside the 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 germans weren't paying off their loans that there was no way they could pay off those loans and so so instead they were just issuing their own money and Mm -hmm. they got the economy rolling again so this was a model that couldn't be allowed to survive and thrive it had to be stopped and they and there was no way to stop it but to go to war uh, and the end result then seems to be i mean whether it's greed or just a desire for profit or desire to keep the system intact in case they're found out the end result in imposing this global financial system is is really control over people it, can, it, it has a definite control over people's lives in a very uh, finite way yeah, and ownership of everything, I think. Yeah. Private ownership, ownership by a, a cartel. Mm-hmm. Uh, while reading your book, <coughs> Well of Death, I had this uh, paranoid idea. At the same time, I was uh, thinking about the psychopathy, psychopathology uh, traits. And, um, <coughs> and I wondered if beyond profit, those big bankers were not also aiming as controlling enslaving and even creating dissension, competition amongst the people, as if getting hyper-rich was not enough, but in addition, everybody else had to be miserable. That's uh, what mm. I understood while reading your chapter about patriarchal system versus matriarchal system. Um, I would see it more as... Well, it is sort of a... No, if you go out there, <laughs> it gets a little, Are we a little too territorial. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get too, too heavily into that. But if you go all the yeah. way back to Samaria, there was there were two brothers, Enki and Enlil, supposedly, who were the two gods, the two competitive gods, and one saw people as um, their children. I mean, well, these were actually mm-hmm. supposedly, according to the Sumerian literature, these were actually extraterrestrials who came down mm-hmm. and needed. I shouldn't go into this. I'll lose my credibility. But I think it is really no. interesting. Yes, thank you. It, <laughs> so it's it's rather you know the movie The Matrix. It's like that. They're still out there uh-huh. in this fourth dimension, and they're still controlling things. So there's there's this one force that is benevolent and sees us mm-hmm. as their children. I mean, they actually genetically manipulated us to be um, to be semi gods, and then there's this other force that sees us as just workers that, you know, to be exploited, rather like cattle. So they don't Mm -hmm. identify, they don't emote with us. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing, I can't even remember his name, but somebody who did a movie and has now passed away, um, who who knew one of the Rockefellers, who said, um, why do you care about these people? Like, he really couldn't understand Mm -hmm. the feeling of caring about the masses. Like, he really didn't identify with 
people well, are seeing his fever. That definitely fits with the kind of things they've been doing and the effect that they've had on, mm-hmm. on, the, on, the, on the world today. We have another call here. We'll maybe just go ahead and take it to see. Oh, hi. Uh, hi. Hi. What's your name? Where are you calling hi. from? Hi, this is Gary from Tucson. Um, hey, Gary. In fact, I, I was just uh, thinking, I think you're thinking of that Zeitgeist movie where it was uh, a friend of one of the Rockefellers that was saying, you know, what do you care about when when the people who are going to be killed in 9-11? Mm. Um, I think that was where you were remembering that quote from. Yeah, it was. Okay. A, it wasn't that he had made a movie himself, but he may have been interviewed. In it the, sounds the like it was uh, yeah. Yeah. From Freedom to Fascism by Aaron Russo. Aaron Russo, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was that's it. That's what that was he it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, you got a question, mm-hmm. Gary? Aaron Russo, right? Yeah, I do. Um, so, with all of the you know the world banks and and even nation states uh, accumulating gold and silver, what are your thoughts about uh, people perhaps taking their savings and transferring that into actual physical gold and silver, not not the you know like the GLD on the Comex, but but the you know the actual retaining of of real precious metals or even other possible precious commodities. And I'll take my answer off the air. So thank you. Okay. Well, it's it's not a bad. bad I mean, I personally have done that. As I mean, it's it. You it certainly used to be a good investment when it was going up, but now they've manipulated it so heavily that it's. It's risky. It can be risky like anything else. I mean, it's not going to go up just because it's a safe haven. I don't think because people don't believe that anymore. The market is not in favor of that. Um, but the thing is, that is a, a personal. It's something you personally can do with your money. Yeah. But but what I'm more interested in is what does the government do with its money? I mean, what I mean, mm-hmm. that the, the more um, like the government can't buy gold. So you have governments that now have their money in Wall Street, which is where it's very vulnerable and Wall Street is getting the benefit of using that money for in, for their derivative schemes and it could all be gambled away into their derivative schemes. So we should be setting up mm-hmm. public banks if only to protect our public monies. Yeah. I, I think the point maybe is that there's nothing necessarily wrong with the idea of banks as long as they're, you know, Good banks are they serve the serve the people essentially they just facilitate the flow of money and they you know it should be a government organization because I think it was last week or the week before we had a caller who who and we were touching a little bit on the banking situation and this caller was suggesting that people just take all the money out mm-hmm. of the banks you know as a kind of protest on mass remove all of your deposits yeah. from the bank. If we, but, if we all did it together at the same time, yeah. well, the system would crash and they'd, they'd lose, we'd win. But I don't, well, I'm not sure that would... First of all, I don't think it would work. You wouldn't get people to do it. They're too inured in the system. And also, it's. I don't think necessarily the idea of a bank or a banking system is fundamentally evil or bad if it's run in, in, in a positive, benevolent way. No? Yeah, I agree. And certainly a public bank is good. But, but in Germany, you have... In public community and cooperative banks that do vir- virtually all the domestic lending, and those are even though some of them are the community banks are privately owned, but they they actually have a mandate to make loans in their local communities. So that's a good thing. I agree. Yeah, maybe. You and I don't describe. think I don't think Wall Street would even like you say not everybody's going to do it, but mm. they don't even want our deposits now. What do they have? Three trillion in excess deposits, something like that. 
So yeah. they want to they want to play in the in the derivatives market. That's where their mm-hmm. big money is now. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, um, what's your point of view is about the sustainability of the current financial system? Since they seem to have all the powers, they can issue money. They have. Uh, uh, their fingers in every pie, in governments, in agencies, they control virtually every market. So what might put an end to this uh, system that has been prevailing for decades now and even, that has enormous power? Even if it's painful. <laughs> well, I suspect there will be another collapse, and this time the government won't bail them out, and they will take our deposits instead, and that will totally infuriate people, and then people will get on the on the bandwagon yeah. and and change people, the system. People will go hungry. Yeah. And then they'll respond. I mean, it, that will be, it would be nice if we could set up an alternative system before that happened. Yeah. But um, one way or another, I suspect it has to change because it's just not sustainable the way it is now. And taking out deposits is not unlike the quantitative easing that were made a few years ago. Basically, when banks make profit, it goes in their pocket. When banks lose money, it's us citizens that pay, either through quantitative easing or through uh, deposit retainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. We're underwriting the whole system. We're even underwriting the shadow banking system. That's what I'm just writing about right now because of this um, the super priority and bankruptcy thing. They get to snatch all the collateral before anybody else, and that's a law that the bankers managed to get passed. So if we're underwriting the system, we should get the profits. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or we or we should not underwrite the system. We should w- w- retract all those laws that are allowing them to borrow very cheaply and basically extort from the people. Ellen, one question that readers of your of your books my my contemplate is um, finally is it is this old financial system only driven by opportunities greed and individual goals or is there some level of uh, coordination uh, at the national or international level maybe you could tell us more about the bank of international settlement and the uh, how financial processes are coordinated? The Bank for International Settlements grew from that whole crisis where the Commonwealth, I I wrote this in my new book, The Public Bank Solution, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia was doing so brilliantly well and the head of it made the mistake of going to London and bragging about how they had even funded World War I without having to borrow from borrow from anyone and he said that the the resources of Australia were were unlimited they they were as you know whatever the imagined could think of they could fund with their bank well this quite alarmed them and so so they met with some other big bankers and set up first it was um the their actual um uh, the commonwealth the the British commonwealth at first they imposed these public these um central banks that would issue the money and lend it to government so that was the new system and then after world war II, uh after world war 1 england became so they they were no longer the 
the money power because they had had to spend they had had to borrow so much from um for to fund World War 1 and so America then was the big money power and so they set up the Bank for International Settlements which was the US, England, France and Germany supposedly Germany was in it because they were the ones who were supposed to be paying the reparations but somehow by the 1940s the Germans were pretty much in control they had turned this BIS around so that they were laundering I mean, it was alleged that they had laundered the European gold that they had confiscated through the BIS, and it became very controversial, and there was an attempt to shut it down. But no way were the bankers going to allow it to be shut down because this was their system by which they regulated money flows globally. I mean, that was the plan, and then it got bigger and bigger in uh, 19... 89 that uh, the mm-hmm. first the first Basel 1 came out and that totally cr- the Japanese banks at that time were the biggest banks in the world and the world's biggest creditors and Basel 1 imposed it just increased capital requirements by 2% but it was enough to crush the Japanese banks and then Basel 2 crushed um that Basel II imposed the mark-to-market rule, which ultimately I wrote an article on this. It's kind of difficult to follow, but that ultimately was what what crushed the Ameri- the the U.S. banks. I mean, brought brought on the 2008 crisis, and then Basel III. It looks like is designed to crush the the public banks, the the smaller banks, because the the capital requirements are so onerous that the small banks are forced to sell out to the big banks. And in the public banks, they're they're not allowing them to use their government guarantees for capital. So they're requiring them to come up with capital like everybody else, which means the public banks, too, are going to wind up um, crushed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and what we see when we, we, we follow the evolution of those uh, big bankers is that uh, since they managed to seize assets along each crisis they engineer, they build financial and industrial empires where each time they buy new companies, new factories, small banks, and they create huge conglomerates. And uh, in the end, a few families, Rockefeller, Rothschild, Morgan, Lub, uh, a handful of families control huge market shares in industry, in steel, in uh, military, in oil, in uh, in finance. Yeah, and I I did just write an article on that too, where where do they get the money to buy? I mean, why are they even allowed to buy things like that? It's because they do it through the repo market where they're using those excess reserves, uh, excess deposits, they invest the excess deposit supposedly in safe things like um, government securities, which is what they're allowed to do. But then they use those securities, the you know the treasuries, short-term securities. They use them as collateral in the repo market, and in the repo market, it's totally unregulated. They can borrow hugely on this collateral, and then with the borrowed money, they do what are effectively leverage buyouts. So they can buy up all all these whatever they want. They can buy up with that huge credit line that they basically get from the repo market using our excess deposits as collateral. Maybe you can explain in a simple terms how 
big players can uh, manipulate uh, financial markets, in particular through the, the use of short sales. So, so listeners understand how they they control any evolution in the market up or down. Sorry, I didn't hear the last. How they control it? Uh, how how big players can control the market going up or going down through the use of uh, derivative in general and uh, short sale in particular. Mm-hmm. A short sale is where you buy you sell something that you don't have and then you're you're supposed to cover by buying that stock it, the the theoretical theoretically what you're doing is um you borrow the stock from somebody and sell it and then you have to buy it you you will then buy it at the lower price that will cause the price to drop and then you'll buy it at the lower price to cover and the reason they that is not too bad, but what is really bad is naked short sales where they never buy the stock because, for example, with Bear Stearns, they crashed the whole company um, by short sales, and then they never had to buy buy the stock back because there there was no company after that. Uh, And also uh, market makers are allowed to do naked short sales, which means they're allowed to to sell stock that they don't have and they never will. They would never will have. They won't acquire it because they're supposedly making markets. It's it's pretty complicated. I don't know how much but but the thing is if you have a whole bunch of sales, you have a cascade of sales, then that triggers stops on all these people put stops on their stock like if it if it drops below a certain level then then it'll be sold automatically. So that can trigger a flood of sales, which drops the the cost very low, yeah. and then they can come in and buy it at the very low price and acquire it very cheaply, or they can mm-hmm. do that to currencies, and that's how they can crash the currencies of governments. Like they crash yeah. the pound. George Soros crashed the pound just to show that he could do it. I mean, it's just like to prove how vulnerable the system was. Of course, he made a mint doing it. But his mm. argument was he did it just to show how bad the system was. Yeah, and that's mm. how they brought on the Asian crisis of 1997-98. Um, Alan, I, I was looking at your your Web of Debt blog, and I saw that you have um, some speaking engagements coming up in Ireland next month. Um, uh, I, I suppose you've been um, keeping up with events over the past few years in Ireland, yeah? Yeah, um, but if you have more information for me, I'm collecting information now. So. Well, no, I'm, I'm. I was just. I'm. I'm assuming you. You, you saw the the tapes that were released eventually of, mm. of the the two directors uh, tape telephone conversations between two directors of Anglo Irish Bank, which was the major bank that kind of that that went down uh, back in 2009. Um, and it just those tapes uh, provide a real insight into the kind of mentality. Uh, these people have, you know, the directors of these banks, you know, they were laughing basically at at the fact that they had gone to the Irish Central Bank and said, listen, we need seven billion. And um, and they were kind of saying, well, you know, yeah, they were just saying that they pulled, they pulled 
I'll not be vulgar, but they, they, one of them said that they, when, they, when one of them asked the other where did they get this number seven billion from, he said they just pulled, he just it, pulled it out of thin air. They pulled it out of thin air, yeah. Um, and they were laughing at, at, at just this idea of how they just went down and dropped this bombshell on the central bank. And he was basically saying, you know, people understood that he was going down and demanding seven billion pounds or seven, seven billion euros of Irish taxpayers' money that was going to be used, that should have been used to fund social services. And it was now going to uh, to prop up this bank. Of course, it was eventually nationalised. But um, I don't know if you've seen those tapes. You should probably. You should probably. Or if you, yeah, I, don't know if you've I seen had them, but you something prob- about it. I didn't. I didn't listen to the tapes. For, but um, yeah, this it was the same mentality in in our collapse. It was seven hundred billion, and somebody asked, "Where did you get the figure?" And that's what they said. We just pulled it yeah. out of the air. It seemed like that yeah. would cover it. Yeah. Well, one of the questions that I don't know if you'll be asked this when when you're when you're in Ireland, but one of the questions that I think that most people would want to know is where did that money go when you know the banks were saying we need X number of billions to keep us going or trillions or trillions or whatever. But and so where did the money go? It's gone. They were gambling on the international market and they lost it. But so someone else got it. Some other banks are seven billion or seven hundred billion uh, the richer as a result. Um. Actually, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I have to look into that. You know, after after that in the U.S., there was like twenty three billion, depending on who, yeah. or trillion, depending on who you read. Sixteen trillion at least, up yeah. to maybe twenty three or four. But that was money that was created by the Federal Reserve itself, and it was just short term so, loans. But the first, okay. the original seven hundred billion, was real money, real taxpayer money, and it did mm-hmm. go to the bank. I think it went to. I mean, I'd have to refresh my memory, but it went to buying that they bought a lot of um, um, Citibank, I think, like eighty mm-hmm. percent or yeah. I mean, they they did. But when when I say where did the money go, I don't mean where did the bailout money go. I mean where did the money that was there before the, that caused the bailout to have to be paid? You know, where did the bank's money originally? How did they lose it? Oh well, or any bank. In, yeah, in the U.S., what happened was they, this whole system where where you lend the money first, you create mm-hmm. the loan, and then you have to borrow it for somewhere quickly. You have to get liquidity. Mm-hmm. You have to grab the money from somewhere to clear your to um, clear your checks. Mm-hmm. They borrowed from the money market. Well, the money market went down. It it broke the buck. It mm-hmm. went below nine, nine below a dollar. Went to ninety seven cents, and so all the investors. And mass pulled their money out of the mar- money market, and then the um, the banks were not they, there was no liquidity. They couldn't cover the checks, and so they mm-hmm. were technically insolvent. And so, so to I think it was to replace that. You know, they had those those different facilities that they came up with the uh, term lending auction facility or to towel mm-hmm. for something like that term auction lending facility. So basically, they were providing the liquidity that was not provided, supposedly, by the um, by the money markets. But I, but I had read that the money markets were back in operation by then. So it was really kind of just a ruse to set up this whole mm-hmm. bailout system where the banks could borrow very cheaply from from the Federal Reserve or from the government. Yeah, that's something that struck me is that it was back to business as, as usual pretty soon after, in the sense mm-hmm. that no amount of bailout um, was actually going to cover the amount of toxic debt out there. 
But they seem satisfied with this short-term solution, at least initially, the $700 billion figure. Now, when I went back and looked at how the crisis in 2008 began, um, I was actually listening to one of your talks, and you pointed out that uh, Lehman Brothers' stock plummeted on September 11, 2008, and that this precipitated the, the crisis the following week, where Lehman Brothers went under, but then I was also today, to, actually September fifteenth. <laughs> oh, is it? Five yes, day five years today. ago. So, um, I, there's also another. Uh, there's a, a talk given by a U.S. House of Representatives um, member. I think it's Paul Kanjorski, in yeah. which he says he he described the situation at the time. You know, we were in Congress. There was an air of panic. And we were basically told, um, well, the situation we found ourselves in was that somebody within a space of two hours on September 11, 2008, had pulled over half a trillion from the U.S. money markets. And they had to do something or they were looking at, you know, trillions being drawn out of the system. Well, what happened there? Does that sound like that was, I don't know, some kind of financial attack on the country? Well, I, I was highly suspicious, of course, by the September 11th thing. It, I don't know if you noticed, yeah. but September 11th was also the day that they were trying to get Congress to vote to go to war with the, um, with Syria. I mean, it just mm-hmm. seems yeah. to me that um, suspicious things happen on September 11th. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and in fact, the Lehman Brothers thing wasn't as bad as they made it out to be. And it was really a couple of days hyped. later, I think on September 17th, when the market really dropped and it looked like that was short selling, manipulated short selling. Hmm. I think was it was September eighteenth that Henry Paulson went to Congress, I think, after the market really dropped. Yeah, yeah. Um so that that was hyped. That was a contrived crisis, so to speak. It did end up being a real crisis, but not for them. It ended up being a crisis for the people. But it was by no means a crisis for the banking system any more than it was just business as usual for them. Yeah, and Lehman Brothers, um, the reason it went down in the first place was that J.P. JP Morgan grabbed the collateral. It was because of the super priority and derivatives, which I think that's that's what they've got to get rid of. But of course, if they do, they'll get rid of the whole shadow banking system, which is half our half our credit market. So you can see where it's it's not yeah, that easy it, to untangle, but the, the whole system no. is based on fraud it's incredibly risky we need i think the whole system should be public really or you know at least the the major players should be public yeah it's their playground and they don't want to give it up yeah yeah all right well Ellen, we don't want to keep you uh we've run over our, our hour already we want to keep keep you from um uh from whatever you plan for today um <laughs> so we uh, we really appreciate you appreciate you being on on the show and and talking to us. It's been great. Um, and maybe we'll do it again sometime in the future. Okay, thank you very much. It's great talking to you. Okay, have a bye good one. Bye bye. You too. Thank bye. You. All right, folks, we're going to a commercial break. You may have heard it before, but it's well, been a while. Let's play it again. That's the way we roll. So we'll be back after this. Since ancient times, great civilizations have risen and fallen. 
the biblical plagues and the collapse of the old kingdom of Egypt, the plague of Justinian and the collapse of the Roman Empire, the Black Death that devastated Europe. Could similar catastrophes strike our planet again? Laura Knight Yadchik's latest book, Comets and the Horns of Moses, provides compelling evidence that the course of human history has been defined by extraordinary and devastating cosmic events. Drawing on her extensive study of history, religion, psychology, and physics, Laura uncovers clues hidden in the great myths, ancient astronomy, and the works of the Greek philosophers to unveil the secret knowledge of the ages, cyclical cosmic catastrophe, the periodical return of an extraterrestrial threat whose power moved mountains, reduced magnificent cities of old to rubble, and left the most powerful emperors trembling in fear. Comets in the Horns of Moses is a groundbreaking work that sheds light on our dark ages to reveal a timely warning to humanity. The clock is running down on our civilization. Comets in the Horns of Moses, available now for purchase from all Amazon websites. Yes, indeed, if you haven't got your copy of Comet in the Horns of Moses, you should get it today because time's running out to be up to speed on that particular topic, which is of really the utmost importance. It makes the banking issue pale into comparison, pale in comparison, and um, it does. It does. make it insignificant one of these days. Indeed. Now, um, having said that, the the book by Ellen Brown, Web of Debt, is is really interesting. Um, we do recommend that as well for readers. I, I think there were a lot. We had a short time frame to to, to talk to Ellen, so a, a lot of the technical stuff was probably a bit, you know, out there if you haven't heard it, but. We in her book, she does explain it very yeah. well in a, in a fun way too. There's even mm-hmm. a Wizard of Oz theme running through the book, which well, she quotes from. You it. know, my problem with the banking whole banking system is that uh, when you read about it and you read about uh, or you look at the language that they use to explain it, uh, right there, I'm suspicious because exactly. it's written uh, about and explained in in a very complex and convoluted way. Uh, that suggests to me that there's something being hidden or it's being yeah. written about in that language so, so people don't understand what's really going on. Yeah. Because what's really going on is quite simple. Yeah. Okay, they've made it more complex if you want to get into how they've actually, how they go about their manipulations. That's all quite complex. But the base of it, mm-hmm. as we've just discussed, is very simple. It's a scam. Yeah. It's uh, banks uh, which should be the issuing of loans and money is fundamentally in the interest of the government or the state uh, and the people that uh, live in that state or in, in that government in that in that country, and it's simply a means to an end. The issuing of money or loans is a means to an end. It's not a commodity in itself. It's not something that should be uh, sold to people, like selling debt to people, like selling selling uh, loans to people, essentially, as if there's some kind of uh, putting it on a par with with an actual uh, an actual actual goods, for example, like a chair or food or skills, actual manual labor, they do nothing. No, they they provide no service, no tangible service whatsoever, or certainly no 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 service that warrants them making large amounts of money on the basis of it, essentially profiting from simply. A, providing uh, these days a virtual uh, environment for your money, your digits on a screen to be stored, and B, 
uh, in the same way, issuing you issuing people with a loan to to go and and, and you know to, to do something that, that, that it's not free it's not for free that it's a loan but there should be no interest claimed on it because they don't deserve it. The issuing money and issuing loans is fundamentally a part of the local community the, 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 yeah. and the structure of exactly. the local government or local state or whatever size you want to spread it out to. It should be a local government or even national government, uh, depending on the size of the country, uh, yeah. operation. There's a place for banking in the same way there's a place for accounting. You need someone to keep the books. Yeah, you raise a, a fundamental question. This is uh, the notion of, of value, value of currency and value of goods and value of labor. And often in uh, classic uh, economist uh, theories, uh, there's this distinction between capital and labor. And in our Friedmanian time, capital is ruling labor. We are the slaves. Us laborers are the slaves of capitalist bankers. And that's very paradoxical in the sense that capital money is a piece of paper that has only the value that we attribute to it. While on the other side, the other component of this alchemical dynamics, i.e. labor, has a very tangible value. This is hours of our sweat, of our skills, of our talents that are investing in the production effort. And that's directly correlated of a the value of a country, its GDP. The GDP of a country is a direct consequence of the efforts, the skill, the productivity mm-hmm. of the people who work in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the point is is that issuing money cannot be like uh, the service of, issue, of, of, of giving someone a loan or storing someone's money cannot be seen as something that uh, or seen in a, in a similar way to someone who provides a day's labor or someone who makes something and then sells it to someone else. You cannot sell uh, holding someone's money. You, know, you can't charge for it because money is not the same as those goods. It's not the same as labor or goods. Money is, is, is the third element, if you know what I mean, in a transaction. It's, it's what's exchanged and it's a means to an end, essentially, in terms of facilitating uh, exchange of goods within the country. You cannot put a price on that itself. You know, the price is on the actual exchange of labor and, and goods, not the thing that facilitates it. And they're, they're, they're charging money for the, for the facilitating of it. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. When, when it's in the interest of the government to simply allow, have something in place that allows the exchange of goods and services between people in the country, that's just something that facilitates it. It's like charging something for something that facilitates something else. Yeah, exactly. Money is a kind of uh, grease. Yeah, it's a mean in the money. wheels. Yeah. It's just a mean. And it's not a necessary mean. No. There are many examples, yeah. tallies, barter, yeah. that shows that money is not necessary to economic process and trade. But it is those processes because of liquidity, of its universal value, its tradability, its transportability. Mm. So it has virtues. Do you know what it's like? <clears throat> as it as it strikes strikes me now, it's it, it's like say you take a uh, in a barter system, you have a guy who makes chairs, and a guy who uh, or a woman who um, raises animals. <clears throat> Those two people get together. One of them wants a chair. One of them wants some meat. 
and they exchange it. And they come up with an equal, or there's an established, you know, a value to each, and they exchange it. Those two, those two products, um, because they need them. Money, uh, or sorry, banks, are essentially a third person standing in the middle and charging both of them for the ability to simply exchange those two goods with yeah. each other. Parasite. What, what service does what service does he provide? It's that a parasite. That, that is absolutely necessary. Yeah. It's not necessary at all. I mean, he can maybe. You know, and, and essentially that third person is the state or the control, the, the, the government or the local state authorities who want to bring those two people together. They shouldn't charge for it because it's in the interest of everybody that that those that, that, that exchange of goods or services happens. You don't charge the two people for simply wanting to barter with each other. Because they can, first of all, they can do it themselves. Okay, you might need someone to organize it if it gets very big, but that should be the local authority in whose interest as representatives of the people or as the people themselves, it is to have this facilitation to, to facilitate the, the exchange of goods and services. Yeah. So it's parasitical, yeah, exactly. Parasitical and um let's let's we can even imagine that charging is legitimate. A little bit of interest, a few fees, because there is some info effort involved. But today's we are far beyond that, far beyond bone charging for service that is legitimate or not, today's today, more and more people and more and more nations are slaves to debt. Mm-hmm. That means that we became slave to something that is just a facilitating artificial construct. I don't even agree that there should be some fee involved. Because it, in the context that uh, it, uh, any kind of banking, let's call that third person, the banker or the bank, should be state-controlled and state-owned. It should be a state operation in the same way the state provides services because those two people who have had the, the border between each other, um, they should be facilitated to do that in whatever means by a bank, by, by the issuing of money, etc., or loans even, etc., because ultimately when they do that exchange and, or on their goods that they, that they amass themselves, let's say, money, they pay taxes afterwards as well to the state. So it's in the state's interest to be that third person who facilitates that exchange via money or whatever because they're going to get taxes from the two people, from the chairmaker and the animal raiser. They're going to get it anyway and they're going to get it ultimately as a result of the exchange between these two people. So they should not be taxing or charging for the service of facilitating the exchange when the when, when the exchange itself will bring them money. Do you well, know what I mean? That, that's where the fee comes in. And actually, other taxes, not actually, taxes by the facilitator of the banks who do nothing. Historically, this notion of interest came from other kind of loans. In the past, if individual A was lending, loaning, say, a herd of cows to individual B, when individual B returns the herd of cows, Usually, there are few extra cows. That's where this notion of usury mm-hmm. and interest came from, and uh, it was transposed to the financial system. Except that, unlike cows, banknotes, money, don't reproduce mm-hmm. during a, a yeah. given inter- interval of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's, uh, it's become even worse than that because the taxes, in it, the taxes in addition to the interest that's paid back are another form of interest. If the taxes are not the way we've been thinking of taxes, traditionally that you pay taxes into a group fund mm-hmm. and it will go into Serve services for everyone. 
substantially these days, the taxes go to the banks as well. I mean, this is a big bone of contention in the U.S. about the, the income tax. Mm. It never existed until the IRS was formed, until the Federal Reserve was formed. And there are a lot of people in the U.S. who say legally, technically, the government has no right because of a constitutional block against it to raise income taxes from people. Um, and one of the reasons those taxes are increasing, at least for middle class and, and poor people, because it's quite a different uh, story for the very rich, is that in the U.S. and other countries, in most countries, budgets, public budgets are disbalanced. There's more spending, more expense than income. And one of the reasons why there is this disbalance is because of the growing impact of the debt. The countries usually use 20% of their old public budget to pay their debt. I'm not talking about repaying the principal here. Just the interest. Just paying the interest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, uh, about, about the language. Mm-hmm. That is that is deliberately done, and uh, in her book, Ellen Brown gives some mind-bending examples. She says, "Here, here's a passage from the, the law that, that set up the Federal Reserve, for example. Mm-hmm. See if you can understand it." Mm. And I mean, it's it's barely grammatically correct. I mean, it's incorrect. It's it's this completely obscure lingo, and it's it's deliberately done that way. Now, now Ellen is able to translate. Here's what it is in, in simple, plain talk. And if people saw the plain mm-hmm. talk, they would say, no, oh, no, I don't agree. To, I'm not signing that. Mm. No yeah. way. Well, it reminds me of um, Europe until the 19th century. Some groups, some elite groups, doctors, priests, were still using Latin and not uh, local languages. Uh, they were using Latin because it was a way to preserve secrecy and to hide things because... Uh, as, it, as explained in uh, Ellen's book, clearly this old system is based on a lie, on a slate of hand. And in order to obfuscate the truth, in order to to hide what is really going on, they have all this uh, jargon and these complicated terms in order to hide a very simple truth. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a result of psychopath, psychopathology and power, um, pure greed. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you, you look at the results of the whole credit crunch and the bank bailouts and stuff in, in different countries. Um, for example, if you look at Ireland, you know, I mean, the, the end result of this greed and psychopathic um, ideology uh, amongst these banking institutions and the bankers and all the people from the top down kind of thing who are, you know, just, um, you know, enriching themselves, seeing ways that they could con and scam uh, the markets and scam other people and scam each other uh, to make as much money as possible for themselves out of, really out of nothing. Um, the end result was that you had these bailouts where, um, <clears throat> in Ireland, for example, the, the European Central Bank and the various different banks in Europe that were owed money as a result of, um, you know, the part of the bank bailouts wasn't just bailing out banks in Ireland, it was paying back um, investment banks and banks across Europe who had invested in Ireland and in in the Irish banking system as well. So 
but they had taken gamble. This was the whole argument at the time was, listen, <clears throat> banks have been gambling essentially with their their um, account holders' money um, for a long time, and they've been gambling on, they've been passing around these dodgy uh, mortgages, etc., that that were never going to be paid and they're passing off between each other, and someone was going to be left holding holding the baby type thing, and. Um, and these people, since they were gambling, they knew they were taking bets and, and risking <clears throat> high-risk investments all the time. If they lost, like any gambler at a casino, sorry, bye-bye. <clears throat> but apparently there was some other law at work that came into play that said that these people had to be paid back. And it came out of the Irish people's pockets directly in the sense that <clears throat> since then, uh, child support has been cut, unemployment benefits have been cut, Social services of all types have been cut. Inf- uh, investment and infrastructure have been cut because all that money was taken out and given to these banking institutions who had gambled and lost. So yeah. the end, direct end result was and a lot of people lost their jobs, a lot of people lost their houses. So the end result when it filters down to the ordinary person in the street is that they suffer and their quality of life and etc. Uh, is diminished. Now the question is, is that by design? It doesn't have to be by design because it can simply be if you put a very greedy person in a position of power anywhere, ultimately there's going to be other people around that person mm-hmm. who are going to suffer and lose out because they're going to try and their greed will deprive other people. Yeah. So it's a natural outplaying of, of, of greed at the top that people at the bottom will suffer. But Well, this didn't come completely out of the blue in 2008 because there were bailouts before that. There were there were savings and loan scandals before that. A lot of people lost big time when gambles failed and banks and other institutions were reimbursed with taxpayer money. But what happened in 2008 began the current narrative of bailing out the banks, too big to fail. Um, what else did they say? It was called the credit crunch. And I mean, this is ostensibly the reason we're in a global economic recession, right? Five years ago this week, um, uh, I, I mentioned in, in the first half of the show, Representative Paul Konjorski, he, w- he was then chairman of the Capital Markets Subcommittee in the U.S. Congress. Have a listen here to what he told C-SPAN on September 18th, 2008, one week after the beginning of the so-called credit crunch. On Thursday at about 11 o'clock in the morning, the Federal Reserve noticed a tremendous drawdown of uh, 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 money market accounts in the United States to the tune of $550 billion was being drawn out in a matter of an hour or two. The Treasury opened up its uh, 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 window to help. They pumped $105 billion in the system and quickly realized that they could not stem the tide. We were having an electronic run on the banks. They decided to close the operation, close down the money accounts, and announce a guarantee of $250,000 per account so there wouldn't be further panic out there. And that's what actually happened. If they had not done that, their estimation was that by 2 o'clock that afternoon, $5.5 trillion would have been drawn out of the money market system of the United States, would have collapsed the entire economy of the United States, and within 24 hours, the world economy would have collapsed. Now, we talked at that time about what would happen if that happened. 
it would have been the end of our economic system and our political system as we know it. And that's why when they made the point we've got to act and do things quickly, we did. An electronic run of the banks. Uh, he also said that uh, later on in the same interview that somebody, using an analogy, somebody left us out in the middle of the ocean without a life raft. Somebody, I mean, he was quite pointed, you know, that this has been something that was done um, on a massive scale. The, the Thursday, by the way, he's referring to was Thursday, 11th of September, 2008, seven years after 9-11, uh, five years ago this week. It's, I don't know if that's just symbolic or or not. I mean... Well, I mean, in line with uh, what Alan was saying about the control that central banks have and how they essentially now finance yeah. governments. Um, this this was happening with the, the Fed, is essentially the Amer- America's central bank, and um, this was happening within the Fed, <coughs> within the Fed. And he says this uh, representative Kondorski said that the Fed noticed, but who's to say that someone within the Fed wasn't uh, wasn't, wasn't part that, of it and yeah. that it's a uh, you know it's a message being sent to the government. Or the thing is, he sounds like. He, he he bought the bluff because he was genuinely scared and like, oh, my God, we've got to do something or the whole thing's going to fall. That was the bluff. Of course, the whole thing wasn't going to fall. The system is fake anyway. They're not actually going to let their playground collapse if they can help it. Mm. So they contrived this panic. And that initiated this. Not a new. It wasn't anything new. It was more of the same. Um, bailouts essentially backing up the gambles that these people lose, just taking it to a whole other level. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, in 2008, during this crisis, Iceland didn't agree with their IMF di- directives. They didn't accept free trade, bailouts, injecting money in banks, uh, money coming from the citizens, and they did much better than the other European countries that accepted the IMS, IMF rules. So there are other solutions. And something that is striking in Ellen's book as well is that sometimes those events, those crises, may be due to purely uh, greed or um, profit-seeking. In some other cases, in most crises, actually, most financial crises, you see the same pattern emerging again and again. Yugoslavia, 1994, in Russia in 1989, in um, Southeast Asia in uh, 2007. Um, each time, the population and local governments are blamed. Yeah, the government was overspending. The government was spending more than they were earning. The debt was uh, <clears throat> gigantic. But actually, when you, the real story is that bankers suddenly because usually of ideological reasons, because the country is doing too well, like Yugoslavia, or because the country is not aligning with the neoconservative ideology, they will suddenly switch off the money valve. Well, no more money in the economy. Yeah. And that's why what triggers crisis, because if there's no more money, that's why money is important. Mm-hmm. If it's used uh, in a positive way, because with that money, you still have the cows producing milk, mm-hmm. you still have the chicken producing Hence, you still have yeah. laborers with their 
working skills. Yeah. It, but it's, it's, you cannot pay the laborers and you cannot buy the, the milk anymore. Mm-hmm. It, it is part of the trick. It's, the trick is, oh my God, oh my God, if we don't do something, the sun won't rise tomorrow. And people just sort of hesitate long enough for them to get away with it. Because, of course, the, the real economy keeps going. Uh, things keep happening. The next day, you, you keep going to work. But the, the trick is to convince you that if, so, if such and such is not done, There'll be a run of banks. Your, your currency will collapse. Uh, well, they, they basically, it's a, the thing about it is that there is market sentiment, right? And, and not enough emphasis is given to the idea of uh, market sentiment. And, and I mean, they use this term. This is another fairly obscure term, you know. But uh, I'll give you two examples, one, one specific and one general, is that in I was referring to Ireland and those tapes by the directors of Anglo-Irish. The Anglo tapes. Anglo tapes that... Uh, you can look them up. Uh, they're not very long, but um, one of the directors who was speaking to the other, his argument was, uh, now Anglo Anglo Irish Bank wasn't a very wasn't the biggest bank. There are two other bigger banks in Ireland, the Bank of Ireland and Allied Irish Bank, but Anglo Anglo Irish Bank was um, it was in the hole. It had you know lost out big time in the financial crisis, let's say, and um, it was going to the Irish Central Bank, to the government essentially, and saying. Listen, um, we you need to do something about this. You need to give us seven billion. And they even used this. They even admitted to each other that yeah, listen, we need more than that. They ended up getting about twenty billion or eighteen billion or something, um, or it cost that much to to shore it up after it was nationalised. But they and they admitted that they needed more. But they said we said seven billion. I just pulled it out of my ass. He said because uh, we needed more, but I didn't want to scare them off. So I wanted to get them in with 7 billion and once they were committed then it would reveal that we need more and then they would be hooked because they've already invested their money and they don't want to lose the money right so but one of the other arguments he said he used against the government now the central bank was saying listen we have a they had about a hundred only a hundred thousand investors aren't just four million people but so uh, they had about a hundred thousand uh, mainly commercial uh, business investments and if they went under if they collapsed and investments were, uh, or accounts were put into jeopardy, as and people wouldn't be able to get their money out, or the bank, people, everybody, all of their, all of the account holders would lose their money. This would have a knock-on effect for the two bigger banks. There would be a run on the banks. People would suddenly get scared, get spooked. They would see that, oh my God, people aren't able to get the money from a uh, Anglo-Irish bank. What about, uh, people in the other two bigger banks would suddenly go, I'm going to get my money out, and you would have this doomsday scenario where everybody tries to go and get all the money out at once. So this is the threat they used. Mm. Uh, the reason they gave as to why the, the government had to step in and finance them. And the other, that's, that's sentiment there, right? That, that, the, the idea behind that is sentiment. And the other idea is that it's fairly well known that there are a bunch of, uh, I think there's, a few years ago there was just, there described as maybe in the US on Wall Street, there were about 25 um, bankers, essentially, um, you know, hedge fund managers or whatever, the, the guys who who... who uh, get to have the best accounts with the most money and stuff, and they 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 usually get twenty five thirty million a year in terms of salary and mostly bonuses and stuff. And these guys are the their their opinion is highly valued, and they realise that their opinion is highly valued. So it's quite easy for someone who, if they're well connected enough, to go to one of these guys or more than one of them and say, "Listen, um, would you mind, you know, saying uh, that you think this stock in this company?" doesn't look so good 
And all it takes is a couple of these guys to express their opinion, even if it's a false opinion, even if they've been bribed essentially to say it, that their opinion that the stocks in a certain company aren't looking good for them to drop 10, 20, 30 percent for people to flee. And it's got nothing to do with the actual stock or the, yeah. the, the, the company that's producing the goods or anything. It's got nothing to do no with No concern. It's market sentiment. Yeah. And market sentiment comes from people, individuals who put out communiques to the press or amongst their social network friends or whatever. And, and that's how it's, it's all – very little of it is based on any real tangible uh, you know, material kind of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it is to do with manipulation – in terms of sentiment, in terms of what people think, because it's a very scary position to be in. It's your money that you've invested in. You know, you need to make a, a judgment here as to whether you're going to invest in this one or that one, and who knows where it could go. It's a very complex market, and people can get spooked very easy, and all it takes is a word from someone. Yeah. I would get out of that if I were you. And, uh, and you know, it, 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 it snowballs. And you talk about the future in this case. That is, by definition, unknown. So there's a lot of irrational factors and a lot of fears. And those opinion leaders get their opinion widespread by medias also because there is a strong collusion between industry in general and banking, but particularly between banking and media corporations. JP Morgan, Rockefeller, while they were struggling in the beginning of the 20th century to transform public banking into uh, the banking, the destructful banking we we know now, the first one of the first moves was to acquire. I think J.P. Morgan acquired something like twenty major communication companies, medias, because they know that if you have the medias, if you control the medias, you control what is going on in people's mind. So those opinion leaders control medias, and also. Some insiders, some people who know that, and uh, who know that Wall Street Journal is just a propaganda outlet, they also know that those opinion leaders move such quantities of money that they are market makers. Mm-hmm. And if they say down, mm-hmm. the market will go down. Yeah, so, so they follow in a very pragmatic way. Yeah, it's completely manipulatable and manipulated. You know, and people need to be really aware of that when they're engaging in any way in any kind of investment activities or, you know, I mean, it's just everything is against the little person, the average person in the street, and everything is for, you know, the people in the know at the top who are controlling the system. And it is a system that's been set up to be controlled and controllable. It's been constructed that way over the past, you know, I don't know, however many years. And and like Pierre just said, banks aren't just banks anymore. Think about where banks came from. <clears throat> what they should be. They're simply there to hold people's money a vault. And, and issue loans, right? But now, as you said, the big, the four biggest banks in the U.S., for example, have investment for portfolios in, in so many major uh, corporations and industries. I mean, they're, they're buying and trading. Uh, they're buying and selling uh, oil. Oil and food. food. They're in construction industries. They, they have stakes in, like, all the major industries, including... Oil, you know, I mean, they're they're literally taking over the world, you know. They they control the tangible assets, including commodities, and they also control the virtual markets that control the value of those tangible assets. Yeah, that puts them in a far more uh, controlling position than just a corporation. Yeah, there's a a bank and a corporation. There's a double control. And um, 
just going back to what you were saying previously, this hysterization of the masses by looming the fear that if you pull out the plug of the banks, everything will collapse. And this is simply not true. No. In Iceland or in some other cases, Malaysia, a few countries have not followed the rules of the international bankers. And, uh, for example, you can let a bank get bankrupt while guaranteeing the depositors. Yeah. Okay, we don't fund the bank, but all depositors yeah. will be paid back. Nobody will lose money. You can also nationalize a bank. Because what was done in the U.S. in Europe was all the more shocking that about two trillions were injected during this quantitative easing plans, which is, a, again, a good example of this jargon. Quantitative easing, it means, okay, we take money from citizens' pockets and we put it in the bankers' pockets, mm -hmm. basically. Um, this quantitative... Even worse than that, it's we'll print a lot of money, give it to the bankers, and then send the bill to the people. Yeah. So, yeah. in, so it means they're indebted more in the future. Exactly. Mm. And uh, this quantitative easing could at least have led to a nationalization of the banks that were funded. But the way to avoid that is that uh, they, mounted, uh, they created a scheme where it was uh, some kind of loan mm. that would be repaid yeah. or not. But in the end, citizens got indebted to save the banks. And in 2008, when the foreclosure crisis started, you didn't see one move, uh, one law in the Congress to create some quantitative easing to help people to help people who are losing everything. Yeah. They were losing their house. Yeah. The banks that created this crisis that led to foreclosure were seizing the house mm -hmm. of citizens, mm -hmm. and the government, who is supposed to be for the people by the people, was not spending one penny yeah. to help citizens. Mm -hmm. And in every year since then, year on year, for the last five years, banking profits have gone through the roof. Mm -hmm. They're breaking yeah. record year on year. Absolutely. Like this year, uh, the Europe's largest bank, HSBC, posted record profits. And they, that's in spite of subtracting record fines from money laundering. Yeah, absolutely. It's so, <laughs> He's still got the massive profits. It's disgusting. I mean, even small banks, I remember looking a few years ago, uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland, you know, posted quarterly profits maybe it was half yearly profits but i think it was quarterly profits of 10 billion 10 billion pounds that was a, that were the profits in, in in one quarter of the year um so you know you wonder where all the money's gone uh it's it's not hard to find but i mean it's hard not to see in one sense it's hard not to see that the the end result was planned mm. in terms of what pierre was just talking about in terms of the People losing their homes, or their cars, or their uh, their possessions that were the <clears throat> that was the security for for their mortgages, whatever you know, um, because the whole mortgage kind of crisis, where banks were packaging all of these mortgages together and pretending they were rock solid, these were gold, when in fact they were a very different color. Uh, because the people who own these mortgages um, were very unlikely to be able to pay them back, and they pretended that they were, so they had a uh, this was this was, and they traded them between banks between each other, saying these are really good, these are people definitely these are 
gold members. These will pay back, no problem. You'll get your interest. You'll get your 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 uh, principal back. Everything. And so they were making money off. It was like selling. Uh, I don't want to use that. I don't want. I don't want to be down on Gurdjieff, but it was like selling canaries. Uh, yeah. or, or sparrows painted yellow to look like uh, canaries and getting a high price of the canary and then when it rains it washes the yellow off and it's a sparrow and somebody's like well I just paid a lot of money for this canary and it's a sparrow I can't sell it on to anybody to get my to get my money back so um, but in that case the sparrow's a house right so but the problem the is the sparrow is stolen in addition it's stolen originally you know, it's not the, even there the MBS scandal is that those mortgage based securities were tradable goods Asset based on nothing. People were paying for that. Yeah. Paying basically for crap. Yeah. It was based on a collateral that was a house that would yeah. finally be stolen mm-hmm. because it was given in exchange because the mortgage was based on money that didn't exist. And that was a case in beginning of 20th century. A lawyer sued a, a bank <coughs> that seized this house. I think it was in, around 1920. A, for a mortgage of $14,000, and the attorney who was being seized claimed that the contract was void because its content, the money, had no real objective basis. Yeah. And actually, he won. Mm-hmm. He won because it was proved that the bank, it was just a figures written on screen or paper, the operation for this mortgage. So there was no money lend, so the contract was void. So there was no seizure. But sure, you can imagine the bankers when they saw that this court decision, and then there was an appeal. The judge was dismissed. I think the guy died. Or, mm-hmm. And uh, but it was an interesting precedent showing the the extent of the scam. It, it was an, it's it, as what, if you you be, you you're not being reason. robbed once. It's as if people come in your house, they rob you, and they rob you again. And when you go to the police station, they come and take in your, your house. car. They, they get your uh, your car while you're driving there. And when you come back, your house is taken. Yeah. They, they, and when you're in jail, they even come and take your clothes. They steal your your strip clothes. Yeah. You know, it's an incredibly evil thing to do. Uh, and I can't imagine that they didn't realize that the end result was that, for example, a lot of people are going to lose their houses. I mean, it's not it's a no-brainer. You take mortgages bunch of mortgages that you hold as a bank and you realize that these mortgages are unlikely to be repaid but you dress them up and present them to a different bank and say listen these mortgages are going to be repaid it's an ironclad agreement here these people are good investors they have the means to pay it back this is worth a lot of money it's worth all of the money that the mortgages are are, are worth uh, but I'm going to sell them to you at a little bit of a discount because I like you and in fact they're they're worth you know not even worth 10% of that let's say so you sell them on make a profit on these dodgy goods essentially and you sell them all around between each other, between the banks, and everybody's passing them on and dressing them up and exchanging them and mixing them in together. And the end result is someone's left holding them. Someone's paid a lot of money for them and left holding these mortgages that they're not going to get the money paid back on. What they do get is the houses. The next step is, well, if I can't get the, the mortgage uh, repayments on this, I'm going to have to seize the house. So it's not hard. I can't imagine that anybody who's doing this didn't understand the very obvious end result was that people were going to lose their mortgages. They are going to lose their house. The, the end bank who was left holding them was going to take the bank, take their house from them or their assets from them. And at the same time, banks were, not only were they selling these between each other, but they were 
taking ordinary people's money who were investing in like uh, different kind of mutual funds and hedge funds, exactly. people investing for their futures, uh, putting uh, 10 grand or 100 grand or whatever into an investment bank and the bank takes it and the bank puts that money into buying a bunch of these dodgy mortgages exactly. from another bank and then they're the ones left holding it and they say, oh Jesus, and these are worth nothing and the people who have invested for their future, for their pension, etc. are told by the bank, um, yeah, that investment that you gave us money for it didn't really work out. But we told you it wasn't a sure thing. You also have they screwed sta- everybody. You also have states and cities who were advised by those uh, bankers ended up investing some of their savings, some of the deposit into those toxic financial assets. I mean assets. Those toxic financial products. And that's how you get uh, all community getting bankrupt. Yeah. Because all their savings suddenly disappear. Meanwhile, in the US, an article from a few days ago, Kansas will kick 20,000 people off of food stamps. Why? Because they don't have the money to pay them. <laughs> they're not, apparently they're just not deemed worth worth feeding. Worth feeding anymore. Kansas plans to throw more than a fifth of its nearly 90,000 unemployed res- residents off of the food stamp rolls by reinstating federal work requirements for the program that they are normally waived during times of unusually high unemployment. So people are on food stamps. A lot of people are on food stamps because they can't find a job. And right now is a time of unusually high unemployment. Uh, There are three times as many people working. Well, there are more than three job seekers for every job, let's say. So people get food stamps, which is a certain amount of money every every month that they can use to redeem for food in supermarkets. But they've come up with a, a great new idea. The government has come up with a great new idea, which is to basically put these people to work. Uh, they can't find a job, so let's just put them to work um, doing whatever, anything for. So, you know, we'll give it's a way. I mean, these people are going to be getting like not. If they were getting minimal wage, they'd be very, very happy. They're probably getting, <clears throat> for the work that they'll be forced to do, simply to get some, not actual currency, but uh, uh, it's usually a plastic card that has a certain amount of credit on it. It's not even money. It's not even a food stamp. It's not even a, a fake money. It's, it's a paper money. It's, it's, it's a plastic card they can use that has a certain amount of money every month. And when it runs out, that's it. And you can use that in stores to buy cards. And they'll work maybe 40 hours a week or something or more in some menial task, and they'll get... You know, a pittance for it, and all they can do with it is use it to buy food. And and just for one point about that, uh, it's symptomatic, and the same is going on in Europe, where basically you have very poor people living on food, ta- food stamps, being below the poverty level, who are forced at the same time to have a activity, some kind of work. Right? It's not really work, but uh, because there's no wage. But there is a sweat and the time and the energy you spend on it. And uh, in this sense, it's, it's worse than slavery in ancient times. Slavery in ancient times, the slave was taken care of and was fed. Today, modern day slavery, you have slaves, slaves of debts, who are not even taken care of and who are not even fed. Yeah. You have slaves who are starving to death at the same time. They're not even given enough to actually keep body and soul together, you know. There's another story... Uh from Ohio, that last one was Kansas, this is Ohio, uh, millionaire Ohio governor John Kashik, 
forces starving families to perform slave labor for food stamps. His administration in Ohio will limit food stamps for more than 130,000 adults in all but a few economically depressed areas. Uh, to qualify for benefits, able-bodied adults without children will be required to spend at least 20 hours a week working, training for a job, volunteering, or performing a similar type of menial <laughs> task unless they live in one of 16 counties exempt. Meanwhile, in the UK, I think this is a millionaire, you know, telling yeah. people how much food they can have, you know. In the UK, I think we, we, uh, in, in August, early August, it was reported that um, a million, a million or so people were on something called zero hours contracts, which basically means uh, menial work, not even barely. The the, the 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 wage that they would have gotten um, if how was it yeah zero hour contracts you're you're hired by a private company but I think some of the wage is made up by the government mm. so it's partly subsidised well you get food stamps essentially essentially for working a full it's week you get food stamps uh, yeah. and get nothing from the company you're working for so you're working for free for McDonald's for example exactly. forty or fifty hours a week and in return you get some food stamps from the government. So the government is taking away, in that in that scheme, is taking away the the very basic benefit of, for example, um, giving you actual actual money every month to uh-huh. do with as you as you will to provide for your own needs based on your own decision. They are making you work a full week, but limiting what you can do, giving you a small amount of money in return, not from the company but giving you a small amount of money that you can only use for a very specific product, i.e. food. Yeah, and this week they announced that, oh, we actually overlooked some people. It's actually, the figure is five and a half million people. So in the space of a month, they're sort of, I think it sounds like they're slowly letting out the truth that the UK is a nation of slaves. <laughs> and there's a total decorrelation of capital and labor, which are the two fundamental components of a company of uh, economic development the fundamentals the two fundamental elements of a work contract is the laborer who gives time and the company that gives money in those cases you mentioned the laborer slave gives time the company doesn't give money anymore and in those cases where unemployment is high that's where money can use be used very positively without creating inflation and maybe I can try to describe it in simple terms because Ellen didn't have time to to expand on this, I think, important topic. The prevalent ideology is that if government issued money, it would lead to inflation. The assumption is you inject massively money in the country, in your country, so people have more money, so they spend more, so increase demand. Okay, there's more demand than supply, so prices rise up, i.e., inflation. But this is only valid if you cannot gain productivity, if all your laborers are already working. Let's take the same example with a lot of unemployment. Like in Germany, just after Weimar in the 30s, beginning of the 30s, Adolf Hitler designed construction plans for the country, highways, cars, steel industry, etc. He issued his own money and he injects this money in the companies that have to produce those plants, those goods, 
company has to produce more, so they have to recruit. So employment drops. You have more laborers. They produce more, so the supply increase. But at the same time, all those new laborers, they were employed before. They had no money. Now they have money, so they can spend. So demand increase. So you have this positive circle where sound money creation feeds supply and demand. And in the end, which should be the one and only goal, in the end, the wealth of people, the living conditions, living conditions increase. And uh, in the 30s, the very first highway network in the world was designed in Germany, thanks to this mm-hmm. publicly created money injected in the economy, not for speculation, not yeah. for click. But the goal is obviously not to keep people at a decent standard of living and giving them uh, something, you know, pro- giving them an opportunity to be, to be productive and to contribute to society and to, you know, benefit in kind and to live decent lives, which is totally possible. The goal, apparently, whether it's by design or simply as a natural result of the greed at the top, is to make people suffer. And it's not just the food stamps in the U.S. There's something like 50 million people on food stamps in the U.S. And they're progressively going to be forced into slave labor to just get those food stamps. In the U.K., you mentioned uh, there's maybe 4 million people um, <clears throat> having, resorting, having to resort to food banks. Yeah, because they can't. Yeah. Uh, they 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 can't. They don't make enough money to uh, to feed their families. Um, and in response to that, uh, the education, the British Education Minister Michael Gove, uh, has claimed that the people are poor because they are forced to turn, are forced to turn to food banks because of their own decisions. He said that they're unable to manage their finances. Now that's like a galling statement. Mm coming on the back of this whole financial crisis and the corruption yeah. and yeah. greed of these bankers-type yeah. corporations and government for him to turn around and blame the poor people. And that is exactly the accusation they make on the next level up when, when they say to a country, no, you, you're not able to look after your own finances. What's, the, what's our proof? Well, look at what just happened to your currency. Mm-hmm. That's after they have attacked the currency in order to deliberately create the crisis. Over yeah. and over again, that's happened. And they... In this article that I'm just reading about this guy, the education minister in the UK, Michael Gove, um, it says that it cites cuts to benefits, frozen or falling wages and rising food costs have been blamed in part for some people struggling to make ends meet. Now that ties into rising food costs, ties into what's really going on and the real issues facing humanity that these people are trying to distract against or distract away from. Um, which is climate change, uh, the total disruption of the of the kind of growing season, floods, fires, storms, uh, all of it pointing to the fact that something is very wrong yeah. on our planet. Something is changing, and it's got nothing to do well, directly this, with with you know the, the the economy or the banking system. Or it's I mean that's an indirect result, let's say, but as we've talked about in previous shows, when you have this mass and endemic pervasive corruption in the ruling elite, well, they te- seem to coincide with, uh, with these kind of earth changes that make uh, the suffering of the average person even worse. It started by the greed of the elite, and then it's worsened by environmental changes. And um, and that seems to be the thing that they don't want people to to be aware of. 
So they so they try to suppress it, but then it <laughs> well they create a hullabaloo about bombing Syria and uh-huh. you know potential war and be afraid and stuff. When and in the meantime, the environment changes again for the worst. Yeah. And they have to try even harder to pull the wool over your eyes. You, you can see how eventually it, it, that, that dynamic will snap. It comes to a point where there's a break-even point. It cannot go on definitely. Well, eventually people suffer so much that uh, they can't take it anymore, you know? Something breaks, something, you know, as, and as we've said many times before, it's when people can't feed themselves. Yeah. That that's when, that's the breaking point. You were mentioning, Neil, before the way currencies, national currencies are attacked to put a country on its knee and make him accept the IMF rules, free trade, and make it a new uh, playground for speculators, basically, and for... And for predators. Yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly. And basically to loot the public assets, one penny for a dollar, because of the devaluation of local currency. And... um, Analysts have been trying to explain the Chinese boom that we witnessed over the last decades. Usually what is brought up as a plausible explanation is that the Chinese workers are working really hard. They're very motivated. They're slaves. But in many third world countries and first world countries, laborers work hard. They're skilled. They're motivated. And they're slaves too. One major difference between China and most other countries is that the yuan local currency is not convertible. You cannot convert yuan in dollars. That uh-huh. and the second so that, that prevents currency attack. Yeah, you cannot yeah. attack the yuan. It's not convertible. And the other difference is that the Chinese Federal Bank, that was recently called the Federal Bank, actually before it was a popular bank, I think, or public bank, is publicly controlled. It's a public entity. The government chooses its own monetary policy, and to and the expansion, this growth, this two-digit, double-digit growth that we've been witnessing for years now in China, I think is vastly explained by just two factors, i.e., a sound monetary policy with money created ending up increasing productivity, supply, demand, and uh, ultimately quality of life. It's money made by the people for the people. Yep. But um, I, I wonder about something. Three months before, four months before he was assassinated, JFK supposedly signed an executive order, 11110, in which it allowed for issuing so-called greenbacks, interest-free money. Mm-hmm. That effectively it was government money, as opposed to, to via the banking cartel. I've wondered if if that had a significant. You don't have to wonder because it obviously did. I mean, when somebody somebody gets into power, someone with a conscience gets into power in a, in a major country like the U.S. There's a few very obvious things that quite quickly come into focus as to what the problem is and what you need to do about it. You know, I mean, you don't. If you're halfway intelligent, it's it's the corrupt the corrupt banking system and what we've been talking about, the way money is issued and the way money is made on money at the people's expense. It's the you know the warmongering of the psychopaths in power who want to you know kill soldiers and keep people in fear. 
and keep the entire world on a state in a state of fear. And uh, well, those are the two main things, you know. I mean, and um, the first decision, the first memorandum signed by Lyndon Johnson after Kennedy's death yeah, was reversed. to cancel yeah. the silver-backed greenbacks. Yeah. And now some people wonder, but wasn't it the military-industrial complex that was behind the assassination? Some other wonder, wasn't it the banking system? Some other wonder, wasn't it the CIA? But when you dig a bit behind the veil, you see that these are the main, same not, people pulling the string of intelligence agencies, yeah. of banking corporation, and industries in general. Yeah. Well, on 9/11, um, supposedly, uh, I'm not I'm not sure about this because I haven't really looked into it. But I've seen some compelling evidence that says that the precise places that were hit on the two World Trade Towers, World Trade Center towers, and the uh, the section of the Pentagon that was impacted or blown up um, happened to be places where some serious investigation of High-level financial crimes were taking place. Well, it was also Building Seven, Building Seven, and Building Six. There were uh, yes, there were uh, Building Six, Building Six as well. Yeah, um, there was an explosion reported there before mm. the tower even fell. Yeah, and housed in there was the El Dorado Task Force, mm -hmm. an interagency money laundering watch group mm -hmm. that had been investigating mm -hmm. crimes associated with the plundering of Russia. Yeah. In the early nineties. Yeah. After nine eleven there was all sorts of they, their task was switched to investigating terrorist finances, mm -hmm. which led them nowhere, of course. Convenient. Yeah. They they did a lot on nine eleven, more than just Yeah, there's a whole taking down a few towers. Yeah. Anyway, um I think we're gonna leave it there for this week. Uh next week we may or may Maybe. not. We may or may not have a special guest on. We will let you know during the week. But uh, just so keep an eye on the, on Sat.net and on the forum for information pertaining to that. Um, so we hope you enjoyed the show. We we enjoyed it. It was great to have uh, Alan on, um, and we will see you next week. Until then. Have a good day. See you next Sunday.